Well, I'm excited to start a brand new sermon series today that we are calling Unstoppable because I want us to go back to God's word and see again clearly what it is that God has promised to do in this world that only he can do while we are faithful to do what he's called us to do that so often looks so weak and insignificant. But to do that, we're going to have to be the kind of people we've been talking about for about two years now, where we've said, we want to be a generation of Christians who have the courage to what? Stand. The confidence to speak up and a heart that's willing to sacrifice. Why? Well, because we have the truth of God's word, the mission of God's church. She's not sitting idle. The church is on the move. God's called us to move. And we have the mercy of God's son, Jesus Christ. And there is no better place to see all of this played out than at the start of the church in the book of Acts. So turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and you follow along. What is it I hope you have with you? Follow along in your Bible or a device where you can see God's word. Acts chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Let me set the context first. If you read Acts 3, you'll see that there's a man who was born lame. And his friends and family have placed him at this certain gate on the way to the temple his entire life to beg. Peter and John were on their way for prayer hour at three o'clock in the afternoon when he looked at them like he does everybody wanting some money. And they said, silver and gold, we do not have. But what we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. He was healed. The crowd goes nuts. Now, chapter four, here's where we pick it up. Now, as they spoke to the people, John and Peter are speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about five in that day, when they took censuses and number, they only counted men. So that means men, women, children. This was a huge number beyond 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest. This is a who's who. Anybody that was somebody in a position of power and authority had gathered together for this moment. And for this conversation, gathered together at Jerusalem, verse seven. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ Christ, of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you. This is the stone. Now he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 118. This stone he's talking about is Jesus. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief corner stone. Nor is there salvation in any other. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak. Oh, it's my favorite verse in the chapter. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. Since the people all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of David... Now they're going to quote from Scripture again. Now they're quoting from Psalm chapter 2. Who by the mouth of David your servant hath said, Why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed... Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. We're living in a day where increased, increased opposition to Christianity is common. With Christians being martyred and persecuted all around the world. As well as our own. Our own religious freedoms here in America being threatened in ways we did not see in years past. And increasingly so. As well as leading pundits and social experts often today actually looking at us and saying. It's you Christians who are the reason for all the hatred and wars in our world today. 
If it weren't for your narrow, intolerant religious views about Jesus Christ and morality, we could all get along and we just have one happy, peace-filled, loving world. It's on you that we have all this hate and ugliness. So if that's where we are today, and if you have a pulse, then surely you realize that's where we are today. What can we learn from this chapter? What can we learn from this chapter of the Bible? Well, first, I hope you can see clearly from this chapter. Christians, get this, Christians have always faced conflict surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is not a new dilemma. Take a deep breath. Might be new to you, but if it's brand new to you, then you are ignorant of history and you don't read much. Ow, sorry. This is not a new dilemma, folks. As long as there's been the gospel, as long as there's been Jesus Christ who walked this earth, the God-man, and then ascended to heaven, as long as there's been the church of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, there has been tension, resistance, and conflict surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what I wanna show you. I wanna give you three reasons that I believe it's always been that way, and I hope this doesn't discourage you, and will always be that way. It's always been that way, and it will always be that way. Here's the first reason. Number one, there's always been conflicts conflicts surrounding the person of Jesus Christ because of what the world will and will not do. Now, when I use the word world, I'm talking about the world system, its values, its thinking, its authority, its autonomy, because of what the world will and will not do. See, here's what you need to understand. Ours is not the first day where you say, oh, there's such resistance. If I just say Jesus or Christianity, I'm tagged as a hate monger and there's all kinds of problems and people have misunderstandings. And Christianity, listen, you need to realize that Christianity was not born into a world. Here we are in the book of Acts where Christianity first arrived. The church first took off. People were first called Christians in the book of Acts. Christianity did not arrive in a world that said, yes, Jesus, the only way? Yes, we've been waiting for this message. Uh Uh-uh. No, there was great resistance. In fact, there were a lot of similarities to their day as to our day in that they were very pluralistic. They were not unspiritual. They were not like, this is all there is. Here's the deal, pluralistic as in, yeah, Believe in a God. You can have your God of choice. You can have a favorite God. You can have a personal God. Just don't say your God is better than anybody else's God. And don't dare say your God is the only God. That's the day that Christianity arrived in with great resistance. So I want you to note three things that are going on in this chapter that are still going on today. First, notice They will not, the world will not accept the exclusive truth claims of Jesus Christ. They will not. They won't. Look in in chapter four, verse two. Now, when they spoke, actually start in verse one. Now, when they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple and Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead. I emphasized it so surely you can get this. In verse two, how do the people respond to the apostles teaching and preaching about Jesus? Disturbed. And that word disturbed literally means troubled, offended, angered, and stirred up inside. Sound familiar? Today, that's what you get. They're offended. They're angry. They're troubled. 
They're stirred up inside. That's what was happening then. It's what's happening now. Not a new deal. And notice how their agitation is centered around what? It's centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Christianity teaches its leader founder is like no other. Not just one of many died and rose again. The resurrection. And folks, you need to understand, they're not just troubled about the resurrection. As we preach this and teach this and believe this and sing this. Because of how intellectually implausible they find it to be. And they do. Folks, they are equally troubled about resurrection talk because of the implications to their own lives that if this is true, then it puts Jesus Christ in a category altogether different. And it's no longer just a philosophical ideology to debate or muse on or discuss. It's an historical event to investigate. And you can investigate it and find much corroboration on this and to submit to if it's true. And that terrifies them. That threatens them. That's why they can't just say whatever. Because this truth puts Jesus in an exclusive different category. And threatens their authority and autonomy. So they won't ever just say whatever. Also notice from this passage. They cannot. And it's the same today. They cannot deny the evidence of changed lives. Right? Here's someone that was an alcoholic that's no longer... Here's someone that was beating his wife that no longer does... Lives have been dramatically changed. This man's life was dramatically changed. We can't deny it. The same thing happens today all the time. But did you notice? Verse 14 and 16, it's like, we can't deny it. We can't say it didn't happen. But they still refuse to call it good or allow it to spread. We must stop this. We must stop this. So don't get your feelings hurt when you think, but we do good. I mean, it's Christians all over the world. They're the ones that start hospitals, dig wells, take care of the orphanage, start orphanages, try to help stop the sex trafficking trade. Christians make an incredible impact on our world that is good. But don't be surprised that they just will not acknowledge it and still say it must be stopped. It was happening then, it's still going to happen today. Let me give you another reason for the epic conflict between Christianity, church, and our world. Second reason for this is because of who Jesus will and will not be. Folks, Jesus will not allow you to shape him into whatever you want him to be. Hang on to Jesus. What Jesus are we talking about? You just get to make him up. and He's not a silly, putty Jesus. Just push him and squeeze him. I just kind of feel like, I've just kind of always thought, I just believe, lovely. I have feelings and thoughts also. Are they true? Are they true? Jesus will not allow you to shape him to be whoever you want him to be. And so notice in Acts 4, 10 through 12. Here's how they talk. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he was historical place and time, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands here whole. This is the stone which the builders, you builders rejected, which has become the chief. Oh, can you just sense the, the, the rage building in them as they press this? He's, he's the chief cornerstone. This is the most important thing, Deal. He's not one of many. Is it the chief cornerstone? 
nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, those three verses are packed full of the kind of talk that just sets our world off. It's not that drives them nuts because they'll say, that's it right there. That is what chafes me about Christianity. It's that, that you say he's the only way, that you put him in an exclusive category and it's so intolerant. And if you just back off on that, if you would change, here's how, here's basically whether they say it like this is what they want you to sense. If you just change that one thing, I could accept Christianity and understand where you're coming from. That one thing, that he's the only way and he's unique and there's no one like him. Folks, let me help you. When they push for us to change that one thing, basically they're saying change the whole thing. Because folks, our savior, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, is at the hub and heart of Christianity and the church. The entire church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only God-man who ever lived. Fully man, fully God, took on flesh, obeyed the Father, kept the Ten Commandments, gave his life as a sacrifice and a ransom. There is no one like this. He is unique. He is in an exclusive category. We can't tamper with that. We don't get to decide, well, in our day, that just sounds terrible. We got to back off on that. Jesus didn't back off. We're not arrogantly saying, let's make Jesus exclusive so that we'll be better than everybody. We're just accepting Jesus for who he said he was. Because in a sense, sometimes you feel like they'll say, you know what? You can believe in Jesus as long as you don't have him in this category of exclusive, as superior, as better than any other gods. Try this the next time someone says something like that to you. Say, oh, okay. Okay, let's run with this a minute. Thanks. So you're saying I can believe in Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. Great. Can I believe in the Jesus who said before Abraham was, I am? Is it okay for me to believe in the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Are you going to give me permission to believe in the Jesus that says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm starting to shake now. Can I believe in the Jesus who said, thanks for permission here, but in the Jesus who said, therefore I said to, say to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will all perish and die in your sins. Because that's the only Jesus who ever lived in history. That one, that one. These are his own words, folks. Jesus always claimed exclusivity and superiority to all other gods and religions. He will not sit in a row on level level ground with other ideologies and gods and religions as equal to them. He always claimed exclusivity and superiority as the only son of God equal to God. So here's, here's basically what you're facing. Every human being faces this. You only have two choices about Jesus Christ. Stop trying to create a third, middle, fuzzy ground. You only have two choices regarding Jesus. Either you discount it all. Who he is, who he said he was, his claims, what he did as pure fabrication and push him into the category of liar and lunatic. Stop saying he's a good man, but he's not God. Good people don't go around claiming to be God. He's a nutcase. And he was lying repeatedly. Liars are not good people. So... 
Either you discount it all as pure fabrication and push Jesus Christ into the category of liar or lunatic, or you believe he is who he said he is, and he did what the scriptures testify that he did, and you call him Lord. Those are your only two options. Because of who Jesus is, he will not allow us to recreate him. And so this tension and resistance has always been there. We didn't create it as Christians starting to act real intolerant and arrogant saying, we're just following our savior who from the very beginning said, I'll tell you who I am and who I'm not. And you don't get to decide what you want to believe about me. This drives our world nuts. Let me show you a third reason for the epic conflict between Christianity and the world. Number three, there's always been this conflict surrounding Jesus because of what Christians can and cannot do when they get fired up about Jesus Christ and truly committed to Jesus Christ and focused on the main thing. Look in verse 20, what, what happens? Verse 20, they won't stop speaking with boldness. In this chapter, speak is used 13 times and bold is used three times. They just won't. And I love in the original language, the New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek originally. It's not saying that we have this power that enables us to speak. Literally what he's saying is we don't have a power great enough to stop this from coming out of us. You understand the difference? It's like, this is just who we are and what we do when we really know him and we believe him and we've spent time with him and he's dear to us. It's just coming out. It's just coming out. We don't have the power to keep this from happening is what he said in verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. Secondly, notice they wouldn't yield their conscience to any authority as a higher authority than God's. Now, don't hear me saying you've got a license to just break laws and disobey anything that chafes you. The tax system and the charter, whatever. Nope. Romans 13 says, as Christians, we're to be the example of people who submit to civil authorities, even if you don't like it, even if you think they're dumb, even if you don't agree, until they command you to do something that is in direct violation with Scripture or command you not to do something that Scripture commands us to do, you obey. But here's an instance God said, go and make disciples. We cannot stop speaking about Jesus. And so they said, our conscience is, is, is alleged to a higher authority. Look at it in verse 19. But Peter and John answered, because they just threatened them. Don't speak in this name anymore. Got it? Don't. And so Peter and John say, I love it. Well, you know what? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. A little sarcasm there. It's the same thing that Martin Luther did. Folks, Christians have been doing this for centuries. Martin Luther, the monk who got gripped by justification by grace because he was caught up in this huge system of works, 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 guilt, guilt, guilt. I never know if I'm right with God. And he got a hold of Romans 1.17. Oh, that's a good book. It says salvation is by grace alone. The righteousness of God is given to you by faith, by faith, by faith. He couldn't stop talking about it. He couldn't stop writing about it. And he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor as well as the Pope and tons of people with pointy hats and decorated outfits and said, are, these, are you Martin Luther? Huh? Are these your writings? Uh-huh. 
recant. Recant of everything you've said about justification by faith or die. And he said, basically, my conscience is tied to God's word. I can't do anything other. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Our conscience is tied to a higher authority, God's word and God's calling on our lives to go and make disciples. But I want you to notice something else about this group in Acts 4 that could help us today. They did not, they did not allow a lack of advanced theological training or education to become an excuse for silence. Oh, it's quiet now, yeah. Don't fall into the trap. That's why we've got Brad and we put him on planes. He's going to talk to people because I don't know what they might ask, but he's ready and we'll pray for him. Go, Brad. Oh, listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ has been expanded and people's lives have been changed far more by ordinary people than any clergy or specially trained people that have ever existed. It's people just like you sitting here who pharmaceutical sales reps and homemakers and elementary school teachers and carpenters and engineers and on and on and on out there with other people speaking about Jesus. Do not be intimidated thinking, what if they ask me something I don't know? You can say just like the blind man, I don't have questions to all, answers to all your questions. This I know, I was blind and now I see. You can say I was lost and now I'm saved. I had no peace and I have peace. I had no purpose and I have purpose. You can, you can talk all day long about whatever your problems are and your refutations are. This is my testimony. You can do that. He called us to be witnesses, not amazing apologists. Peter and John, get this, were fishermen. Not down on you fishermen as if you're the stupidest people, but these were ordinary people. The exceptions are Paul who had a PhD level training. Ordinary. And here's the deal. Often that ordinary person gets their attention more because they just think, what? I don't, I don't. They expect me to do certain things. With you, they're like, why is she like that? Why? Why'd she respond like that at work? Why, did, why is she so loving? Why is she sacrificial? This, this is not to her gain. This is not to his gain. This is so different. What's going on here? And they'll marvel. It gets their attention. Don't let a lack of theological education. And I know our, we live in a day where people push back more and have lots of favorite things that they'll say. On some of the, and here's some encouraging stuff. A lot of those favorite things they say are the same things. Get yourself a little bit of help if you want to. We've got good books. You don't have to have answers to 69 things. But even if you have answers to none of them, you still have a testimony if Jesus Christ has changed your life. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. They didn't let that become an excuse to be silent. They spoke. So here's what I really want to dig into with the time that remains. What keeps Christians going like these people? even in the face of persecution and resistance and we're not becoming popular and this isn't getting us ahead. We're not, why would they keep going? Cause I want to be like them. I want to know what kept them going. Cause I want to keep going. Things are only going to get harder folks. If you are just marginally interested in Christianity and you're just here to make contacts, to sell insurance, you're going to bail. You're going to be so out of here. The day is coming whether you either believe this or you don't. You really believe this or you don't because it's going to cost you what would keep you going? Let's see what kept them going. And here's the first thing. First thing that jumps out at me. Look at it in verse 13. 
Same verse. They marveled at the boldness of these people and they realized they had been, say it, with Jesus. Folks, there is no substitute for private, personal, unhurried, quiet time with Jesus. You say, Brad, how do I do that? You read the Bible. I get up every morning and I sit with the Bible in my lap, not just for more information. I hope I do learn some more things. But this is how I spend time with Jesus. It's real. We have a relationship and I pray. This is how I talk with him and this is how he talks with me. And then I talk with him and he talks with me. And oh my goodness, he reorients me. He shapes my thinking. He gives me hope. He grounds me when I'm starting to feel shaken again. Folks, you have to have this. They'd been with Jesus. When you've been with Jesus, we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Some of you haven't seen and heard much at all. Somebody say, ow. That's why you don't speak. How am I gonna see and, and hear wonderful things about my Savior? You gotta read the Bible. And when this is happening, then you're, you're just, you just can't help it. I cannot but speak the things that I've seen and heard. Real time with Jesus. Secondly, notice, they had a firm grasp of scripture that trusts in the sovereignty of God even in the face of evil and suffering. Firm grasp of this doctrine, folks, and it's a doctrine that our church teaches is one of our big rocks, the sovereignty of God. But as we head in to the days ahead, it's gonna be even more essential that you be a, you be a Christian who understands the glorious doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And guess what? These Christians did. They did. Look at it in verse 24 to 26. So when they heard that, what? The threat, don't speak about Jesus. When they heard that threat, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. Now they quote scripture, have said, why did the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. I love this. Look at me. They're scared. They're feeling threatened. And what did they do? They turned to scripture. They went to scripture and it gets better. And they began to pray scripture back to God. I'm, I'm, this is conjecture, but I believe they had some of Psalm chapter two memorized because of the way they just prayed it back to God. Folks, there's nothing more refreshing, settling, reorienting, then praying scripture, you don't have to wonder if you're praying the right stuff. Duh, it's God's word. So it's like, you pray scripture back to him. Why? Because he's forgotten who he is? No, because you've forgotten who he is. And when you take it and you pray it and you celebrate, oh God, you are God. For you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. Yeah. yeah. That's what happens to me in my little corner in my office when I do this kind of stuff. It's helpful. So helpful. They knew scripture and they prayed it back to God, I want to ask you, do you know how to do that? Do you know your Bible well enough that you've got places that are go-to places? You're like 2 Corinthians 29, 11, and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Oh my goodness, that's one of my go-to passages. There's a reason for this because you start to think, Somebody else is in control. The world seems to be winning. Islam seems to be sweeping over the world. And then I need God's word to remind me, oh no, 
oh no, oh no. Yours is the power and the greatness. God's word, you better know how to do this. If you don't today, start working on that. Because you're gonna need it in the days ahead or you will just fold up like a cheap lawn chair and be done. Notice something else about the prayer. When you're using scripture like this and you understand the sovereignty of God, it is so God-centered rather than me-centered. Did you notice that? They, 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 in a sense, they're like, God, you're this. And God, you're this. And God, you're this. It's not, God, I need this. I need this. I need this. Don't hear me saying there's not a place for asking for stuff. But if that's all your prayer time consists of, you need to expand. There's a place for just telling God who he is and it has an effect on you. In a sense, these Christians took five verses to tell God who he is and two verses to ask for something. It starts in, the prayer starts in verse 24 and goes through verse 30. And here's what I think is interesting. Five verses just saying who God is, two verses asking for something and look at the end of verse 29, what'd they ask for? It's not a trick question. Boldness. You can't even say it. Come on, get with it. Boldness. What else did they ask for? Nothing. How about that? Did you see that? They didn't say, Lord, protect our children. Lord, protect our lives. Lord, protect our property and our wealth. Lord, do something about these wicked men. Don't hear me saying it's never appropriate to pray those prayers. You can find those in the scripture too. But folks, there are times when you say, God, the most important thing I need is boldness and I'll trust you with the rest because I'm so confident that you're sovereign. No one can do anything to me that doesn't first come through your hands. You raise one up, you put one down. Your purposes, your plans are being carried out even if it makes no sense to me. Just as we sang, my times are in your hand. No one can shorten my days by one day. You are in control. God, what I need is boldness and I'll trust you with the rest. Boldness. God-centered, trusting God. That's what keeps Christians like these going. So here's what I wanna ask now, because this will be so encouraging. It was to me as I studied, and I hope it will be to you. What happens when Christians start to live this way? Oh, what happens when Christians start to live this way? Real time with Jesus, firm grasp on the scriptures, understanding the sovereignty of God, praying big God-centered prayers. What happens? Oh, the first thing that happens is lost people come to Christ. Look at verse four. It begins with a glorious word. However, they've been threatened and told, don't do this anymore, don't speak. They, they come swooping in and shut them down right in the middle of that sermon. You think, oh, bummer. Wish everybody could have heard all this. And now that they've seen us drug off and cuffed, no one's gonna believe. Not, however, many who heard the word, say it, say it louder. And they will, they will. As we're hauled off, as bad things happen to us, folks, people don't believe. It doesn't mean no one will believe. In fact, sometimes it's better because they say she's willing to go through that and she still believes it. This is real to him, her. However, Many who heard the word believed. And in fact, it says, and the number that day was 5,000 men. Folks, here's what you need to be careful of. God is sovereign and he's doing whatever he's doing in different countries. I know you might not see things like that so much happening here. Don't conclude it's not happening anywhere. 
God is still doing that all over the world. If you're saying, I wish we saw stuff like that going on in the world today, we do. But CNN News and Fox News are not going to show it to you. It's happening all over the world because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's building his church. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. End of July, just this past month, I read an article. I read an article by Mark Howard, who's part of a ministry that's been working with Iranian church leaders since 1990. And he says this. He says, quote, It's a simple story that can be summarized in just two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world and is influencing that region for Christ. He said, as simple as it is, it's an amazing story worth examining deeper. The Iranian revolution of 1979, I was alive for that. Some of you probably remember that. Established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced opposition increasingly and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite happened. Folks, it's the same exact opposite that happened in China in the 1950s when they killed missionaries, booted everybody out, and everybody said, oh no, we're just beginning a work in China. What's gonna happen? I'll tell you what happened. The church exploded with millions of Christians in the face of persecution without the missionaries. Imagine that. Because you can't kick the Holy Spirit out of any country. And you can't keep Christians from speaking about what they've seen and heard even without trained professionals. Despite continued hostility from the late 70s until now, now Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Two factors, he says, have contributed to this openness in Iran. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Be encouraged when you see videos of beheadings of children and women. All Muslims don't watch that and say, yeah, they are deeply disturbed. Many of them to say, that's my religion. That's our way. The very thing that these radicals intend to promote their religion is hurting it. And causing Muslims to say, I don't know. I don't know if this is the way they're turning to Christian. Second, he says, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. Now get this, as a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the past 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together. Yeah, since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians in that nation who were from a Muslim background. He says today there are hundreds of thousands, some estimate even over a million. And then he concludes, we're living in a time when many Christians are suffering for their faith, particularly in Islamic context. 
But the story God is writing for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and remain confident in our sovereign Lord and the power of his gospel. Jesus will build his church. It's a promise. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, by God's mighty hand, his church is rapidly growing. Praise God. That's what God is doing, folks, all over the world. But I want you to notice something else that that happens when Christians get fired up about Jesus. Notice, secondly, what happens. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on the main thing. Filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on the main thing. Look at it in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to bark like chihuahuas and St. Bernard's. They began to laugh for three months. No. I don't know, you may tire of me making fun of that, but I tire of the wacko groups taking the Holy Spirit from us and putting it over there in the land of the bazaar. The Holy Spirit's real. He's a person. We desperately need him. I'm not throwing out the Holy Spirit because we believe the Bible, but when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, it's not to make you bizarre. It's to make you bold. You speak about Jesus. You speak about Jesus. The very first introduction of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, if you backed it up, Jesus speaking says, when I go away, I'm going to give the Holy Spirit and he will give you power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Boldness to speak about Jesus and Holy Spirit filling go hand in hand all through the scripture. We don't need to give up on the Holy Spirit and let that other bizarre camp have him. He's ours. We believe God's word and we want to be filled with the spirit. And when you're filled with the spirit, you're focused on the main thing, Jesus and the gospel. Because listen to me, the Holy Spirit has a ministry of illumination. He is a person, but the Holy Spirit His purpose is to help you see Christ more beautiful and more worthy and more willing to risk for. My my oldest daughter just moved to to St. Louis, the west end of downtown St. Louis. And we helped them move in. And several nights we just took a walk around the downtown area. And I was struck by the number of beautiful churches, beautiful cathedrals. But one night especially, we came upon one. uh, Everyone else just went ahead of me. I just stood there with my head back, looking straight up into the jet black ink sky at this glorious cathedral. The arches, the architecture, the beauty. It was just stood out in the night. I love stuff like that and it was beautiful. Listen to me. I didn't for a moment start thinking, that's an amazing floodlight system that they have aimed on that. Wonder who did that, how much that cost. And I wasn't taken with the lighting system, though there was one or I wouldn't have seen it. The lighting caused me to delight in the cathedral and to be taken with the cathedral and in awe of the cathedral. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, you're taken with Jesus and you see him more beautiful and you cannot but speak of the things you've seen and heard because you're seeing more of him. He's more beautiful and you have boldness to tell others about him. But let me show you one more connection here. What happens when Christians start to live this way? Lost people come to faith in Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on the main thing. Look at this. This one might surprise you. 
I hope it doesn't. You'll live much looser to the things of this world, the very things that our world grasps and claws for and hangs on to. I'm talking about stuff and money. Yeah, there's a connection. Notice in verse 31, what's the last word in verse 31? Say it. Boldness. And the very next verse, verse 32, has Christians giving away money and stuff like crazy. There is a connection, folks. Now, don't do what's not there. Verse 32 is not a theology of socialism and communism. If God really gets a hold of us, we'll all just share everything in common. No, that's what political parties might want us to do. Bible doesn't command you do that. They were not commanded to do this. They just started doing it, taking care of each other and not clinging to their stuff as much. Now, there's a connection. Stay with me. It's not a coincidence. It's not a change of subject. Here's what's going on. What's the biggest reason we don't speak up more for Jesus and we're not more bold? Fear, is it not? What will they think of me? I might look stupid. I might get ostracized. I'll be that one that's pegged as the Christian at Fear, stay with me. It might be that you're stingy or materialistic that you won't give more, but I think there's something else bigger. What is the biggest reason we won't let go of more of our money and our stuff? Fear, I might need this. We might need this. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what lies ahead. I've got to take care of me. We need to fear. So get this, when you're filled with the spirit and focused on the main thing, two things start to kick in. Bold to speak about Jesus and radical generosity to let go of your stuff. Bold to speak about Jesus. And it shouldn't be like, well, I got this one thing going on, but my money's mine. Something's not right. They didn't have to be instructed by the apostles on this. Both began to take place. If you read verse 31 through 34, you'll just see woven back and forth together. Boldness to speak and radical generosity. Boldness to speak and radical generosity. Listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, listen, I hope you're encouraged by this. It's not a new dilemma. Others have walked through these kind of days and God is giving us everything. Everything they had, we have. He's giving us everything we need to live in times like this. Don't be intimidated into silence and be told that ours is a, is a movement of hate and exclusivity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Folks, Christianity is one of the most inclusive movements ever. Jesus came to die and gave his life for people, people, irregardless of skin color, gender, economic background, education, or nationality. He came to die for sinners. And Revelation 7 says the spirit is drawing people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. No one is excluded from this free offer. And Jesus died to save people from every, every economic strata and nation. It's a message of hope and inclusivity like no other. But here's the rub. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to me. To become a part of this most inclusive movement ever, you do have to bow the knee to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. That he is who he says he is. And he did what the scriptures testify that he did and call him Lord. Not good man, not wise man, Lord. 
Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord, thank you for what you're doing all over the world right now. You are on the move. And even what it would be your pleasure to do here in America. And Lord, we're not motivated by the promise that we will see amazing fruit. We are motivated because you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. We get to be your ambassadors. We get to be your witnesses. And we'll trust you with the harvest. You put in your harvest sickle when and where you're pleased. But we want to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ with our words and with our money investing in what matters most. Oh God, use us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.